Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 16? Psalm 16, which you'll find on page 535. Before we read, let's ask the Lord for his help. Let's pray. Father, as the Lord Jesus prayed, we also pray, sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Please open our hearts this morning and help us to receive this word with faith and with the joy of the Spirit. Work in us by your Spirit, Lord, for our good and ultimately for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So reading from Psalm 16, beginning in verse 1. A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, my flesh, my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, in your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Congregation, the great church father, Augustine, said in that famous line in his confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. When he said that our hearts are restless, he meant that we're constantly seeking for something to fill us, to give us meaning, to satisfy our deepest desires. We yearn for something to give us refuge and rest and security, something that lasts. We might look for that refuge, that security in our work in other people and their affirmation of us, in sports and entertainment, in physical pleasures, in drink or narcotics, even in our own religious efforts. But how many of these things truly satisfy us? How many of these things can truly give us rest and peace? Psalm 16, which we've just read, is a song, a miktam of David. 
And in this psalm, David shows us where we find our true refuge and rest. He shows us that we can trust and treasure the Lord who satisfies his people and preserves them both now and forever. Let me repeat that. We can trust and treasure the Lord who satisfies his people and also preserves them both now and forever. I invite you to consider with me this morning three movements in this psalm. First, the Lord is our highest good. Second, the Lord makes us content in the present. And thirdly, the Lord makes us confident for the future. So firstly, the Lord is our highest good. The psalm opens with a request, and I hope you still have your Bibles open. It's a request that expresses complete trust in God, reading verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. This is a prayer for God's preservation. Keep me safe, O Lord. Not only my body, but also my soul, indeed my whole being, keep me safe. Do this, David requests, because in you I take refuge. He has gone to the Lord for refuge, for shelter, for protection, for preservation. The snowstorm is coming, Lord. Be my warm, safe haven. And then he makes this beautiful confession in verse 2. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. What would you say is the most valuable thing that you possess? You might point to a family heirloom or your vehicle or an antique piano, a guitar, expensive jewelry or your house. What is your greatest possession, the greatest thing that you have? Or think, what is your greatest virtue? Is it your patience, your loving service, your self-control, your fortitude? We have so many good and valuable things whether possessions or virtues, they are all gifts from our Heavenly Father. But when we compare these gifts to the Lord Himself, the giver of those gifts, we are compelled to say with David that apart from the Lord, I have no good thing. I have no good apart from you. Even my best virtue is empty. I have nothing to boast of in and of myself but God. So think of that most precious thing that you have in your life. And then think that God is even greater. He surpasses the most precious, the most valuable things. God is what older theologians have called the highest good. The highest good. Augustine, I mentioned him at the beginning. He was, I believe, in the fourth century, a church father from Africa, one of the most profound theologians in church history. And he said that there are three things that must come together to make a person truly happy. And I find this so insightful. He said, a person is truly happy when he possesses what he loves, 
when he loves what he possesses, and when what he loves and possesses is the highest good. So it's when you possess what you love, you love what you possess, and when that thing is the highest good. Think through this with me. If you love something, but you never possess it, it can never be yours, then you're not going to be happy. That's what makes unrequited love so difficult, isn't it? How many songs have been written about love not returned and the pain that follows, the resulting unhappiness? On the flip side, if you possess something that you don't love, you're not going to be happy either. You don't enjoy what you have. But you can still be unhappy even when you love and possess something if what you love and possess is not the highest good. Because you know there's something better out there. This can be topped. This cannot last. It cannot truly satisfy. And the point is this. Only God can truly satisfy us. Because there is nothing better. There is nothing higher, nothing more valuable than God. No other refuge will still our hearts. To love God and to possess Him, that is, to enjoy Him as my God, as your God, is happiness itself. God is our highest good. And knowing this, that God is our highest good, knowing this moves us to trust in God as our refuge. And not only that, but also to treasure God. You know, in church we talk about having faith in God and trusting in God. And my prayer is that all of us present here find our trust in God. But do you also treasure Him? Do you love Him Love serving Him, worshipping Him, thinking about Him, living for Him in obedience. We ought to delight in the One who has made us His own through Christ and who has become ours in Christ. And then this delight in God ought to spill over into our delight in God's people. Reading verse 3, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. David's saying that a vertical love and delight towards God should lead to a horizontal love and delight in the saints, the holy ones of God, that is, you, the people of God, his church, They are the excellent ones. In Christ, brothers and sisters, you are holy, noble, sanctified, as we've seen in past weeks. You are the excellent ones. And so it should be in each other's sight. God says, in them is all my delight. And I ask, is that the cry of your heart? that the people sitting around you right now, as imperfect as they are, that they are 
the excellent ones in your sight? Do you delight in them? Do you want fellowship with them? Do you want to associate with them? Do you love and treasure them? We're so prone, aren't we, to find faults in one another. Because that person's personality clashes with mine. Or because I have a very different view than that person over there. Or I don't like how that person spoke to me that time. Or how he or she acts or speaks. But if God is our highest good, we ought to delight in fellow believers. Why? First, because God delights in them. He has loved and redeemed them. So how could we refuse to love those whom God has loved with an everlasting love? But second... We ought to delight in fellow believers because they love God. We love those, naturally, who treasure the same things that we treasure. You know, we saw last week, right, people that don't say meh to the things that I like and find valuable. We gravitate towards them. And if you treasure God as your highest good, if you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is worth losing everything for, then you also ought to love those who believe the same, who live for that same God and same Lord, who treasure him with all their hearts. If you delight in God, you will delight in his people and in the gathering and fellowship of his people. What's more, if you delight in God, you will also renounce those who make light of your God. This is made clear in verse 4, where David speaks of those who run after another God. And he declares, I will not join in on their drink offerings, and he's talking about idolatry, the sacrifices that are made to false gods. Now we hear that and we go, well, no one here is tempted to give a sacrifice to a pagan god, to a statue. But an idol is more than a physical statue. It's whatever we look to for all our good. It's whatever we go to for refuge in every time of need. The first thing that runs through your mind, I better go to this. Isn't that your God? When trouble comes, when anxieties rise, when health deteriorates, what's the first thing you run to in your heart of hearts. Young people, when you want to be comforted or be affirmed, loved, what do you turn to? To numb the pain or to feel accepted, what is your first go-to? Brothers and sisters, there is a warning for us in verse 4 that for those who forsake the Lord for another God, for something that is not the one true God, their sorrows will multiply. That's harsh language, isn't it? Their sorrows will multiply, become abundant. Why? Because you're turning from the true and living God in whom is your life and joy, and you're turning to a dead thing that promises joy but only gives sorrow. As it says in Psalm 32, verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, 
but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in Yahweh the Lord. The Lord God alone is our supreme good, and he alone is our safe refuge, the one who gives us life abundantly. So our trust must be reserved exclusively for this God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because, and this is our second point, the Lord makes us content in the present. He makes us content in the present. We see that he does this by satisfying us and also by directing us. We see that God satisfies us in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. David is expressing his satisfaction in God as he calls God my portion and my cup. And pay attention to these images. Continuing on in verse 6, he says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Now this has to do with the allocation of land as an inheritance. Think of the distribution of land to the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. Back in those times... Uh, land was allocated by casting a lot. And D- David is satisfied with the boundary lines of his allocated land. It is a beautiful inheritance to him. Now, all of this language, boundary lines, lot, a cup, these are earthly pictures that are reflecting a spiritual reality. Earthly pictures showing us a spiritual reality. Is David really talking about real estate? What is the delightful inheritance that David refers to? It's God. God is my portion of a rich inheritance. What is the overbrimming cup? It's God who overflows in goodness and quenches our spiritual thirst. And so what does the person look like who has a nice allocation of land, what would you look like? Content and satisfied. You won't look to what others have. You're happy with what you have. And that's what the person is like who has the Lord Yahweh as his God. Is it not true then that we have often, we often have restless hearts lacking contentment because we do not fully appreciate how much the God that is ours is worth. There's an old Puritan preacher named Thomas Watson. And he said this, God is as much to be desired after millions of years by glorified souls and bodies as at that first moment. There is a fullness in God that satisfies and yet so much sweetness that the soul still desires. God is a delicious good. End quote. Now, this is a Puritan preacher, someone who would be very conservative by our standards, and he's saying God is a delicious good, spiritually speaking. He is our eternal, inexhaustible cup and portion And he alone satisfies us now 
in this pilgrim life. And he alone directs us on the right path. The Lord gives me counsel, says David. He preserves his people by directing us from the wide path to destruction and taking us down that narrow path, following Christ, which leads to eternal life. He counsels us by his word and his Holy Spirit. But as we keep going, in the second half of verse 7, if you look there with me, we see a somewhat puzzling phrase. It says, my heart instructs me. Is he saying, look within yourself, listen to your heart to find out which way you should go in life? I thought it's God who counsels and instructs me. Why does it say, my heart? This doesn't mean that we should listen to our hearts instead of God. Rather, what David's saying here is that we should so fill our hearts with God's word and meditate on his instruction day and night on who he is, what he has done for us, his mercy and goodness towards us, that even in the night on our beds, our hearts speak to us of the things of God. In other words, we ought to be so soaked in God's word, in the scriptures, that we leak Bible. As David says in another psalm, I have hidden your word in my heart. That's how we keep the Lord always before our eyes, by drenching our hearts in Bible. David says in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me, always in front of me. Brothers and sisters, this is the way to contentment in this life. Walking in nearness to God. Always living before his face, knowing that he is before us. When you walk in nearness to God in this way, you think about God and his word. You think about his salvation through Jesus. You see him in the burning bright leaves in the refreshing rain, in the growing crops, in the beauty of sunsets, you thank him when things go well. You cry out to him when trouble strikes. You flee to him in prayer when temptation comes. When you walk in nearness to God, you no longer compartmentalize your faith. You know, box it in. Sunday morning, that's God time. Monday morning, at work or at school or at home, let's put that God business to one side. No, you refuse to compartmentalize God because you've set him always before yourself. He's in front of you, stamped on your eyeballs, as one theologian once said. The one who walks closely with God is the one who will not be shaken in this life, says verse 8. You will not be shaken in this life. But what about the life to come? The Lord makes us content in the present by satisfying us, by directing us, but also we see, and this is our third point, that the Lord makes us confident for the future. It's not just in this life, but it's also for the future. Let's look together at verse 9. He says, Therefore... 
The Lord is my highest good and he satisfies me. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, right here, we see a twist in David's language. See if you can hear it. Up to this point, David has spoken about my Lord, my delight, my lips, my portion, my cup, my lot, my heart, my right hand, my being, my soul, and then smack bang in the middle of verse 10, he says, your Holy One. Did you hear it? David has been saying what is true of himself, my this, my that. And then in verse 10, he switches to your, that is to God's holy one. This is very important because here, right here in verse 10, David is no longer speaking about himself. He's speaking about the holy one, the Messiah to come. David's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not making this up. Fast forward to Pentecost in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes down upon his church and we see the apostle Peter preaching to the crowd. And we have a record of Peter's sermon in Acts. He proclaims in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus of Nazareth was put to death on the cross But God raised him from the dead because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then Peter actually quotes these verses in Psalm 16 during his sermon. He argues, in this psalm, David said, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. But guess what? David died. He decayed in the ground. He saw corruption. So David could not have been speaking about himself here. David's words had a deeper meaning. Seeing what was to come, he was speaking of the Christ, the Holy One of God. Christ will die and be buried, and he will not be abandoned. He will not see decay or corruption because on the third day, he will rise again. He will break the fingers of death so that death no longer has a grasp on him or his people. And in victory, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will ascend to the Father's right hand and pour out the Spirit on Pentecost. That's what Peter says. This is about Jesus Brothers and sisters, this psalm here that we've read, it's not ultimately about us or about David, but about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. David had confidence in the Savior to come. So then how much more confidence should we have since the Savior has come? We live in a time of fulfillment. He has risen from the dead. He has defeated death. He has secured the victory and poured out the Spirit upon his people. Like David, no, even more than David, you and I can have the confidence that we will be secure even in the face of death, the great last enemy. 
says in 2 Corinthians 4.14, The one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself. And in God's presence, we will have full and everlasting joy. Verse 11, You make known to me the path of life, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is the future that God promises you, congregation, if you are in Christ. He promises you life. As Jesus himself said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The fullness of joy, of life in the presence of God. And that joy will outweigh our heaviest burdens and sorrows in this life, which we're bound to face. So congregation, that means that God is not against your joy, right? We sometimes think of God as a killjoy, someone who spoils our fun, who calls us to forsake worldly joys and the pleasures of sin because he doesn't like us having too much fun. No, it's because it's not because you're seeking too much happiness. It's because you're not seeking enough happiness. You know, C.S. Lewis famously said, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, aren't we? The pleasures of sin, the pleasures of this world, pale in comparison to the everlasting joy that is to be found in God's presence and at his right hand. Therefore, don't settle for anything less. Jesus Christ has secured fullness of joy for us through his glorious resurrection. He is our refuge. Christ is our strength, our portion, our true food and drink, our purpose in life, our hope, and our security. Jesus Christ is the Lord who satisfies us and preserves us both now and forever, in life and in death, So trust in him and treasure him as your highest good. Amen. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, you are our Lord. And apart from you, we have no good thing. Help us to live by that confession then. Satisfy our restless hearts. Direct us on the path of life until we reach the fullness of everlasting joy that is in your presence in the life to come. Strengthen our faith, Father, that we may trust in you and always set you before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.